If you turn with me in your Bible to the book of Job and you read from verses 1, you will find that Eliphaz, the Temanite, is speaking to Job. We'll read from verses 7 to 8. He says, Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plant iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Does the Bible teach that you're suffering because of sin? Does the Bible say that all pain and all agony comes as a result of our own wickedness? Where is the God of love, the God of care, the God who died on the cross for me and you? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, words can be confusing. Teach us how to read your Bible. Teach us how to, how to find you. This I pray in your name's sake alone. Amen. If we go to Job 1, <clears throat> we will see that God is bragging. He's saying, have you seen my servant Job? Who is like him? You know, if, if we have to talk about the Christians on planet Earth today, he would be it. He would be the leader. And Satan says, yeah, but is it without cause? I mean, if you smite him now, see what will happen. And God says, yeah, think. Come on, test him. I'm going to show you that no matter what you throw at my servant, he will honor my name. He will be loyal. I want you to turn with me in your Bible to Job chapter 7. Oh, sorry, I mean Job chapter 42. We are going to Job 42, and we will read from verses 7. If you're struggling to find it, it's the last chapter in Job. And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee, and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the things that is right, as my servant Job did. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that ye have not spoken of me the things which is right, like my servant Job. 
something that's really, really interesting to me and slightly off topic, but humor me. Verse 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Job's friends were telling him that the evil that befell him was because he sinned against God. They were being hurtful. The only thing Job held more dear than life itself was his relationship with God. And Satan sends three of his best agents, three of the wisest men, three people who excelled in reason, in wisdom, foolishness. So that they could confound Job and tell him that you don't love God. God has turned his back on you. That is why you're struggling so much. Do you feel like God has turned his back on you today? Are you struggling with the pain and the suffering that this world has unleashed upon you? Make no mistake, all suffering is a direct result of evil. God is the God of stability, of hope. But through the story of Job, you can see the working of Satan in our lives. You can see that it's not God that's punishing you. You might say, yes, but why did God allow it? You need to remember that when we ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we turned against God. We gave Satan the rulership of planet Earth. And that is why Satan comes to God and he says, I am the representative of planet Earth. I am the legal owner. Now, if sin is so destructive, you might ask, Michael, then how do we find escape from this cloud of darkness? How do we find light? How do we live? I don't know about you, but I am tired of this nightmare. I want to stop crying. So where do we go? What do we do? Turn with me back in your Bibles to Genesis 2. You're going to say, Michael, we've been through the whole of Genesis 2. What did we miss? I would like to introduce you to the world of theology. Technically speaking, we learn at college and university while studying for our degrees. <clears throat> the importance of reading things in context, and I say technically speaking, because the PhDs, the people that write our textbooks, struggle to <laughs> to read things in their context. Elementary, I know. 
I always say. If I scream at my mom and go, Mom, get out of the house, now! And she goes to the court and she says, My son was screaming at me. Yeah, I'm screaming at her. My son chased me out of my own house. Yeah, I chased her out of her own house. Begs the question, why? Oh, the house was on fire. Context. That tiny little word makes a massive difference. So what the theologians do is they tell you that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is two separate accounts of the same story. In Genesis 1, verses 1 to 2, verses 3, we find the origin or the original story of creation. And it ends with the creation of the Sabbath. And then in chapter 2, verses 4, to the end of chapter 2, we find a quite different version of the same story. Why is it that you have these two different stories? Why is it that they apparently contradict each other? They don't contradict each other. The one explains the other one more clearly. But there is a big and important difference. You see, context, context says it all. God begins by showing you that the tender things in life, the small and the soft things in life, like plants and flowers, can only grow when they have a tender, gentle touch. Verses 6 to verses 7. Man was not yet there to till the ground. So God had to bring forth mist out of the earth. And he watered the garden. God designed this exclusion zone, this home, this fenced off area for Adam so that he could understand his need to be fenced off from certain things. God built this garden so that man could understand that the more energy and effort and personal involvement you put into things, the more special, the bigger, the better tasting the fruits of your labor becomes. And when you learn to garden in the heart of another human being, the price becomes amazing. But the story does not stop there. We've discovered why God asked man to help him in the garden. It teaches us how to be tender, caring, understanding. It teaches us how to be patient, to treat every situation uniquely, to treat every person differently, because every plant has its own unique needs. And the better you understand them, the better they grow. Genesis 2 verses 15, and this is where it gets interesting and confusing if you don't keep your thinking hat on. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress and to keep it. Okay, we get that. And the Lord God commanded the man, verses 16, saying, Of every tree of the garden they mayest eat freely. Context. God puts mankind in the garden to keep it. Okay, work here, till it, serve the ground. We, we learned some interesting Hebrew 
concepts. Verses 16, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, what does eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil have to do with tilling the ground? Some old school conservative Christians will tell you that if you stay busy, the devil won't tempt you. Trust me, he still tempts you. But there is some truth to it. Context makes a big difference. Why did God create Adam to till the ground? To learn what love is, to learn how to love. Could love be the foundation for true obedience? Will love keep you away from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Let's, let's keep reading. Verses 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. Wait, what? What is the knowledge of good and evil and the fruit of the tree have to do with being alone? Oh, wait. We're supposed to garden so that we can learn how to love. We're supposed to find someone special and garden in their hearts. Will that help us to stay away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Will true love elevate us, protect us, keep us and guide us? God doesn't stop there. He says... Now I know you don't know what love is, so come, let me show you what love is. What will happen to your family if your family becomes representative of God's love? What will happen to your relationship with God? If your son and your daughter, your husband or your wife, your mother and your father, your brother and your sister becomes living sermons. How will it change your life? If you found in them the blessing God intended them to be. I want to go back to Genesis 1 for just a second. I want us to look at a very important concept. So God forms man in his image, male and female, he forms them. We're in verses 28. And God blesses them and God said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Multiply. Human sexuality. Michael, you can't talk about it! Yeah, I know, that's what the people said in the good old days, and look at where we are now. Why did God create us with the ability to have children? Why did he design the process in the way in which he designed it? Why is it the biggest temptation known to mankind today? 
In our previous study, we discovered that Satan removes the revelation of God's love from the answers that he has for our needs. And in so doing, he destroys us. I will say it again. Satan removes the revelation of God's love for us from the answers that God has to our needs. And in so doing, he destroys us. Can it be that God designed reproduction with the express purpose of helping you understand who you are to him? I want you to freeze this thought because this thought is the foundation upon which the rest of this study will be built. We're going to talk about the cross. We're going to talk about Sabbath in the upcoming study. And I want to do it in that order. But we're going to go back and we're going to refer to sex in every single one of those studies. Because, ladies and gentlemen, at the core of who you are lives a mother and a father, human, who made you. Why would God create it that way? I spent a considerable amount of time and energy in writing a book that's called More Than Sex. It was written specifically for teenagers and children. A friend of mine messages me on Facebook. I've been advocating for the past 20 years that God is the answer to every single problem on earth. And we can find those answers in the word of God. If we only search. So my friend messages me and goes, Michael, you claim that God is the answer to everything on earth. Well, my six-year-old son is getting sex education at school. They've taught him how to use a condom. How do you fix this? Our educational institutes have reduced love to sex. Yeah, sex is awesome. That's the most amazing thing that you can do. I listened to an ad on TV the other day. Roman Catholic priest, and I have no doubt that he's never seen my books. But he's quoting me. That's inspiration. That's not plagiarism. We serve the same God, apparently. Allow me to quote. Ladies and gentlemen, he says it better than I do when he summarizes. If we teach our children the value of sex, if we teach them what it is worth, if we show them what God intended it to be, they will never be tempted to settle for less. They will never be tempted to sleep around.
when you put the value that God designed something to have back into it, you find freedom from evil. You find an escape. Reproduction was designed to become a window into the soul of God. I want to go back to Genesis 1. Can you see God walking through the garden? Looking at every fruit. Smelling it. Fine-tuning the color. Tasting it. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's good. That, that's what I had in mind. That's perfect. Moves to the blueberry. I wonder if, if he was thinking about me when he flavored it. Because you can make me blueberry pie, blueberry muffins, blueberry bread, blueberry ice cream, blueberry tea. You can give me anything in blueberry and I'll love it. I wonder if he was looking at the sunset hues. Going, I hope it'll touch his heart. Can you imagine the fingers that wove the patterns into the butterfly's tender wings? Would you like to learn to dance on the wind? Then listen to the bird's song. Taste the food you eat. Don't just eat to live. Michael, we're talking about sex. So am I. No, I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about much more than sex. I'm talking about life. I'm talking about making love. Because everything God did in Genesis 1 defines the act of making love. Because God created an entire world for you to live in. I call that making love. When he formed this planet, he was thinking of you. When he set ablaze the night skies with several billion sparkling stars, he did it to color the darkest corners of your nightmares. You want to know what sex is about? Go spend some time in nature. Go name every animal alive. Go explore the fruit trees. I was telling a friend the other day, we have more than a hundred different types of peaches in the Western Cape. Well, the Western Cape is a conglomerate of most of the fruit and vegetables that you can find on planet Earth because it was designed to be a trade route. I love the Cape. I spent half of my life there. Every detail of creation whispers, you are my life.
But allow me to quote Sergeant Smith, well, then Sergeant Smith, now Sergeant Major Class 1. He was one of my instructors at Army Gymnasium. We're sitting in our first class. They're running around, they are filling in paperwork to register a gun for every student. We don't have our own guns yet, they're still locked up in the vault. You can't just give kids guns, especially not 18 year olds. So they need to teach us something, but we don't have half the, we don't have compasses yet. We, we don't have maps yet. We, we hardly have uniforms. But there's a lot of work to cover and they need to teach us something. So they start with probably the least important subject in the military. Geneva, rules of engagement. My least favorite subject. But one of the most important moments of my life happened in that classroom. So the captain's standing in front of the class and going, Boys and girls, if you're serious about this job, and you're serious about protecting your friends and your family and your loved ones, then you need to pay attention, because if you ever get caught, you will be tortured and you will talk. I haven't met anyone that can withstand the type of hell that a POW camp can dish out. So my advice to you will be to try to escape. And in the process, you will get killed. But it's the easiest way out. Because you won't be betraying your friends, your family, your country. You'll find a way to live with yourself up to the very end. My one friend, a girl, puts her hand in the air and goes, Captain, are you telling us that we should kill ourselves if we get captured? This does not fit into Western thinking. It does not fit into civilized thinking. And Sergeant Smith puts his hand in the air and goes, Captain, Captain, may I, may I do this? And the captain goes, sure, Sarge. Sergeant Smith stands up and he goes, You think it's romantic when you tell someone that you'll die for them. But dying is the end. We don't want you to die, because when you die, you're useless. When you die, there is nothing further that you can contribute. What we're asking of you is to live. We're asking you to live for your mothers, your fathers, your boyfriends, your girlfriends, your uncles, your aunts, your cousins, your future children. We're not asking you to die. We're asking you to serve, to make a difference. We're not asking you to kill yourselves if you get caught. We're begging you not to become prisoners of war. Yes, Geneva has rules. But in the real world, nobody cares about them. Michael, we're talking about sex. So am I. So am I. Sex begins while you're dressed. Sex begins in public. It begins by living for someone else. By making them the reason why you breathe. That is why Christ breathed into you. 
You became his breath. You became his child. He put a physical piece of himself into you. So that every time you look at your baby, you would realize who you are to God. I want to repeat this concept because, ladies and gentlemen, you were designed to find in a baby a lesson study guide that goes much deeper than the best PhD on planet Earth could ever present this topic. So never allow yourself to think that you are big or good or strong. We have discovered in this series of lectures, of this series of studies, just how weak we are, just how broken we are, and how badly we need God. God designed children to teach you lessons. Humility is key to growing. So God designed you to have a child that would be a physical piece of you. A physical part of your soul. So that when you look at your body. Lying there in, in that crib. When you look at your flesh and your blood. You can see the way God sees you. Small. Helpless. Broken. Vulnerable. In need of protection. In need of nurturing. That is me. That is Michael. That is what I am without God. The way you feel about that baby, that's the way God feels about you. Precious friend, before you jump into bed with someone, find someone that is willing to give you his whole life. Find someone that is willing to make you her reason for existing. Sex is incredible, yes. But when you choose to sleep with somebody that treats you like your second best, it will destroy you. Making life love is life-altering. It defines who you are. Unless you give yourself to somebody that will walk over you and then throw you away. Something that special, something that powerful, needs to be kept. Needs to be reserved for someone who is willing to make you his entire life. For someone who is willing to spend every moment of their existence trying to make you happy. Sex was designed to be a window into the heart that formed you. When God chose to kneel down in the dust to make you, he did it so that you could understand the humility, the devotion, the compassion demanded by love. Because if a living God had to kneel down in the mud, had to touch dirt in order to show you how special you are, how far should your spouse go?
What is the meaning of I do? We're living in a world where I was speaking to a friend and her son comes through the door. He just finished school and um, we greet him and his mom says, you look disturbed. You look you look worried. What is wrong, love? And he says, Mom, I'm not sure if this girl and me, I don't know what we are. And I say, well, in my time, if you kissed a girl, and I knew he had kissed a girl, you were normally a couple. Um, just presume you're a couple. And him and his mom look at me with a surprised face, and his mom goes, Michael, that was when we were young. Um, nowadays, a kid can jump into bed with another kid, and it means absolutely nothing. You're shocked when I use the three-letter word? I'd like you to play this recording to your children. They might know more about the topic than you do. In fact, if they go to government schools, they probably do. It's sad. Because they have no idea what love is. But they're taught that it's okay to have safe sex. We're selling our souls we're reducing our value to that of servants because we're willing to serve without being served. Unless you find the devotion, the commitment, the passion displayed towards you by God himself. Keep your clothes on. I don't care how you feel. I don't care how good sex is. It's going to hurt. It's going to kill you. It's going to destroy you. Sex is supposed to tell you how God feels about you. It's supposed to tell you what reward God got from making you. You have the ability to give God the emotional satisfaction that sex gave your parents when they conceived you. That is why family is so important, and that is why society today is so broken, is because we get things wrong. When you look at your child, you are supposed to remember the night of their conception every single day. And that devotion to your husband, that care, that passion, that love, is supposed to shape every word you say and every action towards your children. Yeah, we don't have an idea what love is. It's because we don't spend enough time reading our Bibles. That is why our children are the rebels that they are. It's because their lives are not ours. They are not our everything. They are not our soul. They're not our hearts. I speak to teachers at schools and they tell me, Michael, we don't have problem students. We have problem parents. You give me a week with the parents, and we'll have decent children. I'm listening to somebody speaking to a kid. Telling the kid, you stupid little creature. Or no, the word wasn't stupid, it was, you naughty little girl, or you naughty little creature. There we go. And I remember thinking to myself, you want this kid to grow up and believe they're naughty? Ah. Uh, because everything you say 
prints into the mind of that child. You are their reference. You are their life. You are their self-esteem. You are who they believe they are. Because every time they look in the mirror, they see your face. And it was designed that way to teach you who you are. Because when you look into your child's face, you're supposed to see the way God sees you. You were designed in his image. So when he looks at you, he sees a picture of himself. He remembers, I formed you from the dust of the ground so that you can find in me a sense of security. So that you can find in me your identity. Yeah, we weren't designed with supernatural abilities. But when you go to John 17, God is saying, Christ is saying to his Father, God is saying, glorify me with the glory that I had before this world was. So in other words, the revelation of Christ's love to you on the cross, that is the most beautiful part of God. He's saying, this is the glory that I had with the Father before this world was created. Let's talk about sex. Let's talk about reproduction. God is reproducing. The cross? The cross is the revelation of God's glory. In Genesis 1, when he said, let us make man. The cross, the glory of God, that is the revelation of what sex is about. So unless you are willing to pick up your cross, unless your boyfriend is willing to pick up his cross, unless your girlfriend is willing to go through Gethsemane, unless they are willing to bleed, to be scourged with a whip, to be spat at, to be crucified, to have a crown of thorns pressed upon their brow and beaten over the head while wearing that crown of thorns. Unless they are willing to be forsaken by God for you. Unless they are willing to give it all. Don't take your clothes off. We need to build relationships. We need to learn what love is. We need to develop relationships that can teach us how God feels about us. Because when you find in another human being, creation, crucifixion, resurrection, and eternal life, you don't have a life. You're naked. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I'd like to thank you for the privilege that we have of getting to know you. You didn't have to die on Calvary. You didn't have to give us a second chance. You didn't have to give us a first chance. You didn't have to make us. But you knew what we were going to do to you. You knew what this horrible mess was going to cost you. And you still gave it all.
you breathed life into me, knowing that I would crucify you. I cannot understand why. So all I can say is thank you. Father King, Creator God, set me free from this cheap, empty world that I had created through my own sin. Help me see what love was meant to be. Take charge of every, every detail of my life. Allow my relationship with my mom, my brother, with my girlfriend, with my aunt, with my uncle, with my child, to speak to the glory and the honor of who you are. Garden within my heart, remove every weed till the soil so that I might learn to live. This I pray in your name's sake alone. Amen.